AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. So Matt, the recent uh, Twitter hack, we've, we've got some news. Can you share with us? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I'm not sure we actually covered this on the show yet, so I may as well just give a little bit of the background. So back on July 15th, uh, Twitter had a very high profile hack where a number of celebrity accounts um, were compromised. And not only were they compromised, uh, they were sending out Bitcoin scam messages trying to entice people to give Bitcoin to certain wallets uh, with a promise of getting money back. And so apparently the people who did this scam made about 117, 118,000 US dollars doing this. So yeah, it's a big deal. People like Barack Obama, Bill Gates, people who are household names, their Twitter accounts were compromised. And this was back on the 15th. So of course Twitter responded, an investigation was, was made, and as of this week, three people have been charged. Um, some of them, well, at least one of them is uh, a minor, which to me is still one of those things that blows my mind that people so young can get into such incredible trouble um, with hacking. But three people have been charged. And as it looks like uh, right now, the, the charges that they use social engineering, not even like what most people would think of as hacking, no exploits, nothing super technical, just calling up people, pretending to be with the tech support team at Twitter uh, and social engineering information out of them uh, including um, getting them to go to a login page and put in their credentials, which gets oh. them inside of the network. So there's a lot more details as to exactly what they're accusing them of. Um, I recommend you read what you can find about it because I don't want to go super deep into it. But ultimately, these people have been charged. So at this point, it seems like these are the folks who are behind this. Now, one of those things that's really interesting to me is that they got into basically an admin panel for Twitter. We're able to make some really big changes. Mm -hmm. What did they choose to do with that access? They chose to take over what are called OG accounts, which are accounts with very short or unique names. Like if you wanted the at account for the letter A or M or God or something that's very short and memorable, there's a whole market for that out there. And so they actually took over accounts to do that, to get those very unique OG accounts. And then they did the Twitter um, Bitcoin spam that they sent out from celebrity accounts. Mm -hmm. And that's actually one of the better outcomes that came out of this. Those are both terrible things. Sure. But somebody who gets access to that much power at Twitter, if they do the dumbest and most immediate thing they can and get caught doing it, that's better than having access to that level of Twitter for forever unnoticed, at least in my opinion. What do you guys think? Um, what was interesting to me in this, um, you know, you know, the, the age of the perpetrators you know, can kind of point to maybe some operational security oversight that they had, right? I mean, who's really their best criminal self at the age of, you know, 17, right? Probably not very many. Mm -hmm. But what I found was more interesting was that one of the reasons that law enforcement was able to narrow in on these folks so quickly was because that a database that was used by the OG group that these folks were a part of had already been obtained by law enforcement. And so when they started seeing some of these posts, they were able to go back and find records of this in data they had already had and be able to put together a case very, very quickly um, to be able to, to charge these individuals. Because the last statistic I saw on the prosecution of cybercrime, it's incredibly low, like, like one hundredth of a percent 
It's very, very low. And the fact that they've been able to bring suspects to charge so quickly uh, in this case is very impressive. I think there was mention of the uh, admin console of the of like the the Twitter like whatever the admin see that that was posted online and so that was that's kind of made visible. But I, I'm my question is is um, now that this has been shown to be kind of you know you can do this sort of thing. I mean, are, are we sort of expecting to see other companies tight you know uh, tighten the screws a little bit on their admin consoles or maybe rethink you know how much power an admin console can possibly have just because it seemed like once they got in to that admin console, I mean, they were, you know, they, they had, they could do kind of, kind of whatever they wanted. And, and Matt, to your point, you're right. It's good that they just chose to do the things as, as awful as they were, could have been worse. Um, but I, I just have to imagine, you know, other companies have to be thinking to themselves, well, we have this admin console, maybe we should, you know, get some training involved with, for social engineering, because that's one of the ways to combat social engineering, but maybe, you know, look at more strict access control, maybe reevaluate access control, you know, maybe have different tiers where, you know, a smaller group of people are super admins, if you will, and can do things like that, you know? So I don't know, just food for thought. It's, it's just a, it seems like something you should be looking into. Yeah, I think you've got the right, the right uh, idea there, Andy. Um, it's, it's one of those things where someone does have to have access to be like a customer service rep to make certain changes to Twitter accounts. Um, but yeah, the, the potential for abuse if, if one of those accounts is compromised is tremendous. So what can you do? You can limit the population of people who have those kinds of accounts. You can limit the power of those accounts and, and make, you know, like you said, different tiers of admin. Um, but you can also monitor the, the changes that are being made by your admin accounts. I think um, keeping an eye out uh, for, say, changes by a single account to a number of high-profile accounts could be a way to do it. Um, you might have to have a separate tier of user in that case. Like if you're a verified Twitter user with X number of followers or, or some other metric by which you say this is a VIP account. Like this is an account that if anything happens to it, you lock it down and you contact them quickly because the impact for, you know, abuse of this account is significant because of the, the wide-ranging uh, influence that a single Twitter account can have. Like, imagine if they had gone for someone like the president, right? Not just a former president, not just a, a former vice president, like an actual world leader, and tweeted something that wasn't just, please send me Bitcoin, but a declaration of war, you know, worst-case scenario kind of thing. Right. Um, I feel like that's one good way to do it, is to determine who has influence and guard those as your, your VIP accounts. Do you guys have any other thoughts on, on what could be done? And I, I'm, I'm saying not just for Twitter. I'm saying if you do have uh, a situation like this where a single social engineering attack can gain access to somebody that important, you know, these are the sorts of, sorts of ideas you should be considering. Absolutely. Um, and you've seen these types of activities be used before for market manipulation, right? Um, there was several years ago, somebody actually managed to uh, hack, I believe, the Associated Press's uh, Twitter feed, and they made some statements in there in mm. specific uh, to, to, to adjust the volatility of the stock market. They wanted to have a particular stock go up or down. They posted a tweet. They were able to reap a windfall based on that, right? So these types of things, you know, if they, you know, 
published something about, you know, Microsoft earnings from Bill Gates's Twitter account, right? That might have had an impact on market volatility, which would have been, you know, equally profitable, if not potentially more so. Um, so these types of things, you start talking about influence, you start talking about, you know, the speed with which the market moves or markets move, um, that really does become a, a consideration. Um, what's also going to be really interesting in this is how the prosecution is going to be able to link these different elements together and prove to a jury of probably very non-sophisticated, likely non-technology-centric individuals that their case is proven, you know, beyond reasonable doubt. Uh, when you look at the types of evidence that they have to link together between IPs and email addresses and Discord IDs and hacker handles and, and, and wallet IDs that, you know, providing a clear narrative thread which links all those things together and ties them to an individual is something that uh, hopefully they're not going to have a, a, too much of a challenge doing to convince a jury of that. So another thing that you might consider uh, in this case would be multi-user authentication. Not, not the same as multi-factor, but, but to make a change at that level, you require more than one user to sign off on it. I think that's a good idea. I think that there are certain situations that are alleviated by having more than one account tied to making that high-level change. Uh, you have to compromise, obviously, twice as many people. You have to compromise the right people in order to make those sorts of changes. So it takes a little more work on the attacker's side. Uh, and hopefully, um, it means that more than one person has the opportunity to notice and shut down the change when it occurs. Uh, another good bit of feedback would be that anytime you make a high-level change like that, either on the account owner side or on the side of the person who made the account change themselves, like the whatever internal representative, they get they both get notifications on that, and there's some sort of permanent record that's like. You know, a VIP had a change made at this time by this user, and it's not just a log that gets put somewhere and hopefully someone looks at it. It becomes part of some sort of regularly reviewed record that says, hey, VIP A had their account changed by Representative X at this time. Did you mean to do this? Please tell me you meant to do this. I think it's a great idea. Ultimately, it comes down to ensuring that the admins that you do, in fact, have and the access that they have access to, uh, it's making sure that they don't get compromised. And I mean, we, we, it's a common thing already to have something like a manager approve some sort of request or something for, you know, a direct report. That's pretty, that's a pretty common paradigm. So this is sort of is a little, a little bit of a twist on that in that, hey, you know, Matt, it looks like Matt wants access to this particular application. Um, you know, you and one other person are sort of like a delegate you know, sort of, and, you know, you have to approve, you have to say, um, you know, or maybe it's like, you know, I got to ping you, I got to say, hey, Matt, you know, did you, did you ask for access to this application? And then, you know, sort of, you can verify that way. So it's a good, it's a good way of doing it. I think there's just going to be some, there's some implementation challenges, I think, because you're talking about specific people and not just any old person can say like, yeah, Matt, you know, he's, he, he wants access, that's fine. It's got to be specific people. So you've got to get those mappings right and you've got to get those relationships set up. And then there's a little bit of culture that goes into it where, you know, you've got to, you've got to go through that vetting process. You know, you've got to have a security minded team to say, you know what, I got this request saying that Matt wants access to this application. Let me go talk to him. Uh, and, you know, that, that communication has to happen 
And what can't happen is, you know, I get that request. I'm like, yeah, it's probably fine. And I just click yes, because then we're back to square one where, you know, you're just going to get it anyway. I think volume um, is going to play a factor into this. You know, I mean, I obviously I don't know how many um, similar types of changes uh, that, you know, uh, staff in organizations like Twitter make on a daily basis, but I'm imagining that it's very, very sizable. Um, so I think just from an operations perspective, you know, perhaps having a, a system where you have like a reauthentication with multi-factor that's required if you're trying to make an adjustment on certain accounts might scale better and it would get around the reuse issue. Because in this particular story, they were intercepting one-time credentials through that initial social engineering and then using them to immediately log into a system. And it would be harder to do that for secondary or tertiary types of multi-factor authentication prompts, especially if there were timeouts, because then you'd have to find someone to social engineer and have that process within a window, and intercept that credential and do all these other things kind of in a very, very tight time frame in a windowing kind of way there. So that might be another uh, way to move forward in doing that provided that you could flag, you know, that class of accounts that meet that VIP status, for example. So it sounds like there are plenty of things you can recommend that people look into doing if they want to prevent uh, themselves from being the target of an attack like this. Um, ultimately, I think it is still quite a challenge. You still have a human factor at play, and you can only do much, so much to defend and monitor, um, but I'm, I'm not convinced there is a full prevention method here to stop the sorts of attacks that are occurring here. Would you guys agree with that? Yes, I absolutely agree. Uh, I think that's the kind of the essence of social engineering, right? There's no, there's no silver bullet. There's no, you know, perfect way of doing things because you've got the human element and, you know, you can put in controls to prevent people from things, but, you know, ultimately it's people that make the decision to answer emails, click on emails. It's their decision to click on links and texts and receive phone calls and, you know, all manner of, of social engineering. It's not just their decision, it's their job uh, in order to accept those communications. So Andy, help me understand what fully homomorphic encryption is. Will do, Mike. Uh, I can share with you that my, I myself had to do quite a bit of reading to understand what it is, um, but to start, uh, I, I read an article from Ars Technica that was talking about homomorphic encryption, specifically fully homomorphic, homomorphic encryption. It's a mouthful. Um, and the, the article was talking about how IBM has had some recent successful trials of this technology. And I think before we get into what those trials were and, and what the success was, we should probably define what homomorphic encryption is. So I'm not a mathematician, uh, you know, I think we'll, we'll steer clear of the, all of the different maths that are involved in the implementation. Um, but at its core, what homomorphic, homomorphic encryption is, is a technology that allows you to perform computation on still encrypted data without having to decrypt it, which is kind of, it broke my brain a little bit the first time I heard that because it just doesn't seem to compute for me. Um, but essentially to give a very, very contrived example, if you were to say use fully homomorphic encryption to encrypt, say the number one, and you do the same thing for the number two, right? 
So if I took those two um, polynomials, which is which is what it ends up being, it's just these gigantically long polynomials, and I gave them to a third party, and in an ideal fully homomorphic world, uh, that third party would be able to perform computations on those two encrypted values, and then produce the correct encrypt encrypted output, and they would be none the wiser to what they have done. Um, they don't know what the inputs were. They don't know what the output was. They just know that some computation was performed. So this obviously has a lot of you know, far-reaching implications because I think it solves one of the major data privacy problems that we have. So you know we have data we have data encryption at rest. You know we know you're supposed to store encrypted passwords in databases. You don't do it in plain text. And every time we hear stories of, of a breach from some company that involves plain text passwords and sitting in a database. I think we all collectively groan a little bit because it's just so kind of obvious that you're supposed to be encrypting those passwords first. And we, you know, we have data encrypted in transit. It's what TLS is for and other technologies. You know, when you buy something on ATT.com, you don't want your credit card being, you know, swiped by somebody. But what we don't have is we don't have data encrypted in use. And that's where this homomorphic encryption comes into play um, because it allows third parties and it uh, to to perform these computations on, on still encrypted data, which is kind of insane. So, uh, as you can imagine, there's a good number of use cases. Um, one of them would be the contrived example to kind of take that a further is outsourcing computation. So now you can, you, you've got companies that can take a bunch of data that is somewhat sensitive, uh, and maybe there's laws preventing that data from going to certain data centers, you know, based on international laws and whatnot. Um, but now with homomorphic encryption, now you can now you can send that data. That computation can be done, and then uh, in a very private way, that data can come back, which is not something that we've been able to do. Um, another example would be you could say you could query for the nearest coffee shop is a good example. I think a senior researcher at IBM um, provided this example somewhere, but you know he said imagine imagine uh, querying for the, the nearest coffee shop. And the data that goes to the server that handles this request, namely, you know, who you are, where you are, you know, what you're asking for, um, and any other small metadata, um, and then obviously where they're sending you because you're getting a response back. Imagine that data is just abstracted from the server. Like the, the, the server just has no idea who's asking for what and what answer they received. So that's a that's just a new layer of privacy because right now I think we're all pretty comfortable. You know, when you pop in your phone, you know, show me the nearest coffee shop. You know, I, I mean, I, I get it. Apple knows where I'm where I'm getting my coffee this morning, or Google knows where I'm getting my coffee this morning. We're sort of okay with that. But you know, homomorphism can change that. There's a couple of other use cases um, that's provided, um, but that sort of brings us back to the article, uh, which is talking about these successful trials. So what the trials actually were is. They were applying, they as an IBM were applying machine learning to predict the probability of a being taken out by a user. And they did it at an American bank, they did it at a European bank. And I think the European bank is, the, the data is not there yet. If I'm not mistaken, there's, there's a whole paper on the other one. But the gist of it is the outcome was that the predictions were pretty spot on to their plain text counterpart, which is awesome. <laughs> It's kind of it's pretty amazing that you were they were able to do this. They were able to take this data and, and perform these computations in such a way where it was completely private and the outcome was what was expected or the predicted outcome was uh, in line with the plain text version. 
So that's obviously really big news. And that's why we're talking about this today, because this technology actually, um, the, the, the theoretical concept of homomorphic encryption actually was, was created in like the 1970s, late 1970s. Um, but in 2009, a guy at IBM, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, I feel bad. Um, but a guy at IBM in 2009 actually gave the theory some bones and he actually constructed what is homomorphic encryption. So if this technology has been, it's been in existence for 11 years, why are we just now talking about this? And it's what I just said, it's, it's, that, uh, it's that we have a successful trial that was enabled by um, increased computation power. So the reason why we haven't done this in the past is because homomorphic encryption requires um, very large computation and memory overheads. So I think that in the article that Ars Technica put out, I think it's a 50 to one computation penalty and a 20 to one memory penalty. So, you know, you're, you're computing these large poly polynomials, you're, you're running computations on them. Obviously you're gonna get some overhead. And we've just now reached a point where we have the, the compute power and we have the memory, we have the requisite computers to not only uh, get that computation taken care of, but do it in such a way that makes this technology applicable and we can, we can actually use it in real world examples. Uh, and I think that's, that's kind of a big deal because uh, this, like we talked about, this technology has the power to kind of do a lot of things. Um, it's just getting down to actually applying it was a little bit of a problem until now. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, in, in reading through the paper, you know, not being a hardcore uh, mathematician or crypto guy, um, it definitely was interesting to read, and there were certainly some questions when they made allusions to sprinkling the data across large polynomials uh, and the fact that they're using lattice-based encryption, uh, which is, you know, good because, you know, something that is considered to be pretty resistant to quantum computing type of attacks, which, you know, really aren't that far out there on the horizon if you've kind of been following developments in the quantum computing uh, kind of space. Uh, so it's, it's an interesting concept. Um, it would be interesting to see long-term how this would reconcile with really what has become our monetization model for the internet at large, which is predominant, you know, it, it's driven um, mostly by ad revenue and that analytics and the ability to farm all of that, you know, uh, information and metadata that this would then um, complicate. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I remember that when Andy was starting to talk about how, you know, the, the, the companies that own your phone or the services that you use to look up, you know, what restaurant you want to go to or or where what's around the area that you're already in, they benefit from knowing exactly what that data is. Uh, I personally, uh, from a privacy standpoint, love the idea of not having that happen. I also understand that there are um, motivations that companies may not even want to try going down that road because they lose visibility and therefore the ability to make those kinds of marketing decisions. So I think we'll probably see it in, well, obviously we're seeing it in um, sort of academic and research spaces first. I think the first place you might see it outside of that would be in hardcore privacy enthusiast software. Um, stuff that people, you know, the, the selling point of it is that you're trying to keep this stuff super secure. I'd like to see it be used in everyday databases where it, it makes sense to do it. 
Um, but I, I'm sort of, I'm not, I'm not putting, I'm not getting my hopes up. If, uh, you know what I mean? An obvious application would be to secure government data from APT groups from, you know, foreign nationals. Yeah, that's another use case for it. I mean, you've got data that needs that extra level of, uh, of security and, dare I say, paranoia around it. Uh, it makes sense. I actually remember a friend of mine talking about this sort of stuff maybe a decade ago. And some, some client of his had actually made a requirement um, to do this kind of encryption, and it, it didn't actually exist yet. Um, and he was complaining to me that it's like, this is crazy. Like, I don't know how they expect to do anything like this. Um, and from this, what I read the story, it seems like IBM is releasing libraries now. You could just start using it, which is pretty cool. I should probably uh, get back in touch with him. Yeah, so IBM actually a few months ago released uh, an encryption, fully homomorphic encryption toolkit for macOS and iOS. So, you know, we've hit that point where it's usable and it looks like IBM is, is pushing the technology to be made available for, you know, for other other developers. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully we do see this a little more in the future because I'm like you, Matt, I, I would like a little more added privacy. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe where I get coffee in the morning should stay between me and my wife, but you know, I also understand that there, there are business models built on that. And um, I don't know, maybe we'll reach a happy medium. We'll see. So, Mike, uh, this is an interesting story you have for us today relating to Grub2, the bootloader that I think most versions of Linux use. What can you tell us about it? Yeah, this was a, a, a really interesting um, vulnerability uh, that's been identified for a few different reasons. It's one that, um, you know, isn't uh, rated necessarily as critical, but it's one that we're going to need to be aware of. Um, you know, the, the, the boot process just off the, off the start uh, really is the foundational uh, security aspect for any device, right? The boot process is what loads up drivers, low-level firmware code, and ultimately gives rise to your operating system and other value-added applications. So in general, the earlier that code is loaded on the machine, the more privilege and control it's going to have of anything that comes after that. And recognizing this, uh, there are controls in place to um, provide some security around the bootload process. And you know, the, the secure bootloader, um, secure boot is uh, really you know kind of the standard uh, through uh, the UEFI model for for PCs and servers. And to prevent malicious code from being introduced into that boot process, the code that's being executed at that point is cryptographically checked, um, and anything that doesn't meet that cryptographic check uh, gets discarded in an ideal world. So uh, some researchers identified a vulnerability uh, in the GRUB2 bootloader um, that they're calling boot hole, and this is CVE 2020 10713. And ultimately, this is a heap overflow vulnerability which impacts GRUB2 versions prior to 2.06. And so, what happens without getting into like the low level architectural details of, um, you know, the bootloader process and, and, and the signature validations and what have you, is that ultimately the GRUB2 um, shim and, and bootloader there reads from an unencrypted, uncryptographically uh, checked, um, so it doesn't have any certificate authority um, check associated with it, uh, a configuration file called grub.cfg. Um, so it's not signed, 
it's not encrypted. And the boot process, which is signed and encrypted, reads data and processes data from that configuration file. So an attacker that has access to that is going to be able to submit values that are too large for the fixed buffer sizes in the subsequent bootloader code. And because the boot process lacks advanced memory protection mechanisms like ASLR or DEP, that getting arbitrary code execution to occur through this process is comparatively quite easy. Um, and so this is really something that, while it's not going to be an initial compromise vector because an attacker would have to have access to the device, they would have to be in a position to be able to make edits to this file, it is a really, really cool way for an attacker to gain persistence and load up malware at an incredibly low level on a machine that's going to then have the ability to really undermine other elements in your security and OS stack that come loaded later on. And it would potentially give attackers a great place to hide and, you know, maintain their, um, you know, presence into an enterprise for, for quite some time. And while this definitely is going to be impacting, um, you know, Linux distributions, the problem is actually going to be really widespread and it's going to be very, very hard uh, to remediate. Um, Grub2 supports other operating systems and kernels uh, and hypervisors such as Zen. Um, any system using secure boot, even if they're not using Grub2, has this heap vulnerability in it, apparently. Grub2 simply uh, seems to be the execution mechanism. Um, and that, uh, as you said, you know, Linux distributions are going to be widely affected, but not just those distributions, but also appliances and other purpose-built devices that might be in IT environments or OT environments or medical environments that are built on a Linux kernel which leverage this uh, kind of a process. So this is going to be one that is going to rear its ugly head in some very unique ways and be very widespread. And because of the fact that changing bootloader uh, code does run a lot of risks with bricking machines, patching is going to take quite some time. You've seen evidence already of some of the initial patches released for, I think, Red Hat causing uh, machines not to boot up any longer um, and having to be recovered. Uh, so that's going to be, you know, a cautionary sign where administrators are going to have to move forward very, very slowly with testing of any kind of patches uh, that come out for remediation. But you're also going to need to watch out for backups. You're going to need to watch out for legacy installation media that you've, you know, got that doesn't include subsequent patches. Um, so this is one that is, is going to be around for a while, and that's one of the most interesting things about it for me. Yeah, it's one of those low-level ones that, like you said, it, it, it's probably going to last for quite a long time because there's so many things that rely on it that just aren't going to get patched. Um, so many, yeah. I don't know, it feels like the, a couple of years back we had just a, a whole bunch of processor level bugs and then a bunch of like C library bugs all kind of coming in the same span of a couple months. Um, yeah, deep stuff. Yeah, I think, I mean, these are the worst types of bugs, right? The ones that aren't easily patched, the ones that, that do run the risk of bricking systems or, or, you know, potentially taking down things that, you know, make money or hold important data. 
Um, so, Mike, you're absolutely right. If this, I mean, we're going to see this for a while. It's probably going to rear its ugly head a number of times in the future. Um, I guess the only the only advice to give you know, administrators and the like is is find those systems and patch them right and update them. Just be diligent. That's that's really what it comes down to. Am I any other suggestions? Any other advice that we could give other than update and patch now? I think that. Um... Really, you know, patching is is a great um, guidance, but ultimately there are going to be challenges with that. And even once you patch, again, that reoccurrence factor with this is probably going to be pretty high. So really making sure that you've got a strong detective control framework in your organization that is going to be able to identify malicious activity or suspicious activity occurring on your network, engaging in proactive threat hunting, uh, and the like are going to be uh, key uh, as part of a layered defense model to be able to keep issues like this in check. Because again, this is going to require somebody to have that initial foothold in your organization to really be able to exploit. Let's take a look at this week's internet weather. So these are the top 10 most probed ports for this past week. Uh, you can see there are a couple little changes and one very big change. So let's go into it. So in first place for this week, uh, port 23 TCP is Telnet, 8.0 ICMP is Ping, that's upper spot, swapping with 445 TCP, that's SMB. 1433 is um, Microsoft SQL Server, I believe. Uh, 22 TCP is SSH. Now in sixth place here, we have 95.30 TCP, which has jumped up and whopping 668 spots which is really quite something. So we'll be going into that in just a second. Uh, moving on, 443 TCP is up to, and that is uh, HTTPS, 3389 is remote desktop protocol down one. 81 TCP is an alternate web port that's bumped down four slots, and 80 TCP is just plain old web. Taking a look at the most sources probing, we really don't have that many changes here. Uh, it looks like there's a single change in the ranking, um, port 8728, which is related to microtech routers. Um, most of the ports we've seen are the same as the ones that are the most probed ports. Uh, 8291 is in fifth place. That's another uh, microtech one. And uh, 5390P is DNS. So taking a look at this 9530 TCP, uh, this, is a, this is related to a backdoor in specific devices with high silicon chips and Changmai firmware. This is all IoT stuff. It's actually a bug. Maybe not a bug, maybe in a secret uh, backdoor that was found back in February of this year. Um, very interesting article to read. But apparently you send a certain sequence to this particular port, and it should enable Telnet on some of these devices with a known list of usernames and passwords. So obviously attackers will go scan for this port. If it's present, send the, the, the secret knock, and then go and try out the Telnet passwords. So I've got a 365-day view here. Um, just to sort of give you guys some context, you can see here from February where this starts to spike a little bit. You can see a, a few like one-off spikes um, back in 2019, uh, but then as soon as February 2020 hits, this thing skyrockets, eventually tapers off, and as of this week, now we have another spike again that goes not quite as high as it originally did, but significantly high. Um, in the, in the order of 140 million scan flows per hour, give or take. So um, someone is interested in this one. 
uh, maybe rediscovering it, maybe a new botnet, a new operator who's found out that this is a viable bug, um, but who knows. A lot of these sources are in Taiwan and South Korea. My thought is that the botnet is building out, they scan for a bunch of vulnerable boxes, compromise those, and those same boxes are scanning. So uh, this is definitely a port to keep an eye on. I figured I would show port 23 TCP telnet as a 30-day view of the scanned sources. You can see it hasn't really changed all that much. Uh, we did have sort of a drop-off in the last uh, week or so. I don't really have an explanation for that, uh, but it is not a, a significant drop-off. Scan flows on this other port. I figured I'd throw in something that tripped our alerts but didn't make it to the top 10 for either one. This is scan flows on port 22122 TCP, which as far as I can tell, is related to HP SimpliVity, uh, which I believe is a VM-related software. And as you can see, there is a, a, a very big spike here on the third for that port, um, getting up to 11 million scan sources, sorry, a million, million scan flows per hour. And there's only really a handful of, of sources for this one, you know, one or two of them, and they're in Australia. So what this means, we don't quite know yet, but it's certainly someone is interested in finding these boxes. They may have a vulnerability that's about to be used. It's hard to say at this point. And that is the internet weather for this week. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.